When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Hey, it's Mistress Carrie reporting for duty from MCHQ for episode 83 of the Mistress Carrie podcast. This episode of the podcast is sponsored by Digital Federal Credit Union, better known as DCU. And since their beginnings as a credit union for the employees of Digital Equipment Corporation back in 1979, DCU has never lost sight of its roots of being a not-for-profit financial cooperative owned by and operated by and for their members. A lot of things can change in 40 years, but some things remain constant like DCU's unwavering commitment to provide exceptional service and to make a positive impact in the communities where their members live and work. No matter what their members' unique goals are, they're committed to helping them the only way they know how, the DCU way, which consists of three simple philosophies that guide each and every DCU team member. People come first, do the right thing, and make a difference. And giving back is central to what they do. And I know this because I've been working alongside DCU for nearly two decades on philanthropic and charitable endeavors. And I've watched how committed and passionate they are about the organizations that they work with. Since this is the first episode of 2022, I wanted to make sure that I said Happy New Year. And hopefully it's going to be a better year for all of us. I also wanted to give a special shout out to the people with Mistress Carrie backstage passes on Patreon. To John, Brett, Atwood, Ashley, Tracy, Christine, Jenna, Karina, Trina, and Maria, who have all got Mistress Carrie backstage passes. And if you want to learn more, you can head to mistresscarry.com. I am so excited about this week's episode. Author and sportscaster Dale Arnold hosts the Boston Bruins games on Nesson. And he also just recently released the book, Sean Thornton, Fighting My Way to the Top. I've known Dale over 15 years, and he and I are the most unlikely of friends. We worked down the hall from each other for years at different radio stations owned by the same company. And to be perfectly honest, we couldn't be more opposite if we tried, which is what makes our friendship awesome. When his new book came out recently, I hit up Dale and invited him to come on the podcast to talk about his radio career, the Boston sports scene, what it's like to write a book, especially when you're writing it about someone else, how that process is during a pandemic, and we also talked about the highlights of his career and what's next. Dale is such a sweet guy that I am honored to call a friend, and he is also one of the most knowledgeable sportscasters in the business. So allow me to introduce you to Dale Arnold.
Hey, what's up? This is Sully from Godsmack. Strap on those boots, baby, because you are now in the trenches of the war room with the one and only Mistress Carrie right here on the Mistress Carrie podcast. What's up? This is Joe Rogan, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. I have so lovely pretty eyes. Hey, this is Brent from Shinedown, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hey, Carrie, go put your brow on, girl. Hey, this is Steven Tyler, and you'll be listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. What's up? This is Aaron from Stan. And you're listening to Mistress Carrie. Hi, everybody. This is Dave Grohl from the Foo Fighters, and you're listening to the one, the only, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is David from the band Disturbed, and you're listening to the baddest bitch in Boston, Mistress Carrie. Hi, Bruce Dickinson here from Iron Maiden. Yes, indeed. Miss Whiplash herself, Mrs. Carrie, is here to um, unchain your brain. Hi, this is Flea from the Red Hot Chili Peppers, and you're listening to Mistress Carrie. This is Dennis Leary. You are listening to my favorite, Mistress Carrie. Hey, this is Corey from Stone Sour, and you're listening to. You have the privilege of listening to Mr. Scary. Oh, God. Oh, yeah. Mr. Dale Arnold. MC, my favorite purple-haired wench. I'm the only purple-haired person you know. That's a point. That, <laughs> when you met my kids, when my kids met you for the very first time, it was at Fenway, and we went home, and, and my daughter, my youngest daughter, said, I can't believe You've got a friend with purple hair. I said, yes, I do. You and I should be a sitcom because we are like the odd couple. <laughs> we are. It's a good point. <laughs> How long did we work together? I, uh, you know, those years all sort of flummoxing together. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, and I know we were on the same floor for part of it. And then when we moved to the other building, yeah. uh, we were on different floors. But at least we were in the same building. We'd at least run into each other in the cafeteria yeah. or something. It's got to be what fifteen uh, or, years that we were in the same yeah. building at least. Yep, I think I think you're exactly right. That's crazy. Well, and I, now look at you—you you got your own place. Welcome to MCHQ. I like this a lot. It's I'm I'm, I'm pretty damned impressed and, and shocked by the way that it's black. I no, I know, right? not even a little. <laughs> well, you worked in radio for a long time, so you'll appreciate this. Um, when you have your own studio, you can leave the cell phone charger behind. Nice. You, you can leave your favorite pen right there on the counter. It's clean. You can walk out and come back the next day. Your headphones are where you left them. There is this creature. Comfort. Unlike radio. That's what I'm saying. Oh, no. In radio, everything you owned would be gone. Right. And it's yeah. disgusting. Like, if you want to do some kind of science experiment when it comes to germs, just take a swab across the console of any radio station across the country, and you will find every germ uh, imaginable. And that's pre-COVID. I, I always had this urge. I didn't do it, but I wanted to. To leave something in the, in the refrigerator that I knew had gone rancid just to see if somebody would take it and eat it and see who got sick afterwards. I always wanted to do that. People were famous for stealing your food out of the fridge and stuff, for yes. sure. So how long did you work in sports radio total? Um, I started, well, the day they opened the doors at EEI, uh, which was 91. So almost 30 years at EEI. I mean, I did games and play-by-play, you know, for years and years before that at the minor league level, at the major league level. But sports talk radio, almost 30 years. 
Uh, and that was enough. And you're the only person that has done play-by-play for all five major Boston sports teams, and that includes the Revolution, the, the soccer team, right? Yeah. I did Revolution games for a season. Loved it. I, I had a blast doing it. Uh, I was the public address announcer down at, at in Foxborough when the World Cup came to town. I'm a soccer fan, so it wasn't like I was stretching it. Uh, was the play-by-play voice of the Patriots for three years, the Bruins for 12 years, I guess, or something like that. And then I had the opportunity to fill in on both Red Sox and Celtics. Red Sox, as, as late as this past season, Celtics, I, I had I've probably done about 12 to 15 games total in my life. It's not like it's an extensive number, but I was able to do play-by-play for all five teams. Um, when it comes to sports towns, Boston's up there. I think so. Who do you think the, the other biggest sports towns are? Well, people generally look at, at East Coast. They look at New York. They look at Philly. Um, yeah, I kind of leave the Midwest out of it just because people are too nice. <laughs> you know, they're, they're not. They're passionate, but they're not like even you Chicago know, like in Philadelphia or New York. Well, Chicago somewhat. Um, I'm you know Detroit's too nice. Minneapolis is way too nice. Uh, the the West Coast doesn't count. They don't care about anything. Uh, you know. Uh, Atlanta, they don't care. I mean, Florida, Arizona, it really is the eastern seaboard. Maybe stick Chicago in there, and that would be about it for me. When you're prepping on a professional level to do play-by-play for a professional sports team in a town like Boston, <laughs> can you tell me what the differences are prepping basketball versus baseball, versus football, versus hockey, versus soccer? Because when you're the play-by-play guy, you got to be on your game and you got to know everything. And, you know, basketball, there's only five guys on the court. Football, there's way more. So what what's your prep difference? Well, the other part of this too, Carrie, is, is hockey was the only one I did on TV. So people could see what was going on. All of the other things I did were on radio. So you could say, well, if I screw up, who's going to know? No, they know. In this town, they know. So you know, you've got to know the rosters. You've got to know the names. You've got to know the numbers. You can't say, you know, number 17 passes over to number 33. Doesn't fly in this town. It might in some places. You've got to know who you're talking about. Uh, in, in that regard, I found myself almost preparing more for, let's say, a Celtics game, as you correctly point out there's only five guys on the court for each team at a time but I don't know them as well as I know the Bruins guys and the the guys from other NHL franchises uh football is overload there's so many players there but but it's also only one game a week you know for one game a week you put the time in you can be ready come set you know Sunday or Monday night or something you could be ready to do a game soccer Probably I I would put soccer and basketball as the two hardest for me. Uh, Part of it, soccer was the the only sport I tried to do off the monitor. They they set it up originally when I started doing the games that season. They said, look, we're not going to travel you. We're going to have you do the games off a monitor at the studio in Boston. Well, it's not like, you know, gigantic HD screens back then. It was a monitor the size that we're operating on. And I'm (laughs) doing this, you know, trying to see who is who. And after the first game, I just said, I, I can't do this. I mean, I can't see what I need to see to describe. And they started traveling me then. And that made life a lot simpler. Uh, but, you know, those were the ones. Hockey was 
the easiest for me. It was quicker, faster, more verbal gymnastics, but I kind of knew everybody. I not, not just on you know the Boston team, but I knew all the players on all the other teams. I knew the execs. I knew the scouts. Uh, hockey was the easiest. Baseball's the slowest. So you got to have more, you know, prep fill time stuff. You know, you're, you you got to be more of a storyteller in and baseball. And it's so much stats. That sport yeah. is just all, there's a stat for everything in baseball. And Joe Castiglione is going to give you all of them, damn it. Because <laughs> uh, I love Joe. Uh, he's one of my favorite people. No, you're right. There, there's a real statistical bent to the game. Sabermetrics, sabermetricians, and all those guys who want to put the statistical, you know, nuance to it. Hockey, not so much. You don't have time. Baseball's the sport where you have time to delve into all those numbers because there's a pitch, then there's 40 seconds, then there's another pitch, then there's 40 seconds. you got lots of time to fill. And also, it's got to be different when you know the person listening can't see what's going on. There's got to be a little more Hemingway-esque description of where they are on the field or court, what's yeah. going on. Whereas if you're doing it on TV, you can take for granted for the most part that people are seeing what you're seeing. I've done hockey on the radio, both at the minor league and the NHL level. And, and I've also done hockey on TV. And to your point, if, if the Bruins dump the puck into the offensive end and make a line change, well, chances are the viewer and they're pretty astute viewers in Boston. They can see the line change. They can see the puck dumped in. The guy peels off, goes to the bench. They see other guys hopping on. Well, on radio, you can't see any of that. So that's my job at that point. You know, so-and-so dumps the puck into the offensive end. Bruins peel off to make a line change. Hopping over the boards are X, Y, and Z. D pair is now so-and-so, such-and-such. So that when I start telling them X passes to Y passes to Z, these names just don't suddenly jump out at you out of nowhere. I've just told you they hopped onto the ice. So I've prepared you for what you're going to hear you know, in the ensuing play-by-play. Is that something that you always wanted to do and were always good at? Because when I do these interviews, I am shocked when it comes to like the, the musicians that I talk to about how early on. And then I think about myself and tell me if you were like this. When I was a kid, my favorite toy, toy was a tape recorder my parents bought that had a little microphone and I used to carry it around. I gotta, somewhere there's gotta be these old cassette tapes. But I look back at that now and I'm like, how did I not know I was gonna end up doing what I was doing? Did you always know this is what you wanted to do? I had an idea uh, in high school. I, I started doing games on the radio and getting paid for it when I was 16 years old. Um, I'm talking to you from Brunswick, Maine right now, which is where I grew up and went to Brunswick High School and ultimately went to Bowdoin College. I lettered in four sports in high school, soccer, cross country, basketball, and baseball. I didn't play football. I didn't play hockey. So I broadcast them. And I was 16 years old, uh, now working on the high school station here in town, but on the 80,000 watt flamethrower here in town. And, you know, I was doing games on the radio and getting paid for it when I was 16. I wasn't getting paid a lot, I'll freely admit. Then the station underwent ownership change. They were going to start doing college hockey. The new owners came in and they said, listen, and I'm 17, 18 years old at the time. They said, listen, can you do Saturday night's college hockey game until we can hire an adult to do them? And they literally said, (laughs) said we can hire an adult. Yeah. So, so I went and did the game, 
and I came back to the station and the owners were there and they said, you know what? We're good. You just do the games from now on. And so I just kept doing it. And I did college hockey both before I was in college and during my college years. Uh, that led to getting an opportunity in the minor leagues in Portland. And it just sort of progressed from there. But I knew when I was 16 years old, when I go to Bowdoin, they don't have a broadcast department. They certainly don't have a communications major. And I went and spoke to the dean and I said, I've made a huge mistake. I, you know, I'm here. I know what I want to do for a living, but you don't have anything to prepare me for that. And I'll never forget Dean Alice Early said to me, she said, Dale, I was a creative writing major at Harvard. Do you know how much creative writing I get to do here as dean of students at Bowdoin? She said, what's the least offensive thing we have at Bowdoin? And I said, I don't know, psychology. She said, you're now a psychology major. Now what I want you to do is take everything. Take archaeology and anthropology and biology. Take everything we have to offer. Learn how to learn, get your degree, and then go about making a living the rest of your life. Best advice I ever got. Uh, I have a, a degree in psychology from Bowdoin. I minored in archaeology so that I could learn to yell gold for a living. <laughs> well, 9-11 taught me that lesson because had yeah. I not taken those global geography classes and all of that, you know, just because you're on the, the radio at a, at a flame throwing, to use your word, rock station, doesn't mean that you're not going to be called to do something above and beyond what your bubble of expertise is. And yes. we've had to handle things like the marathon bombing and 9-11 and, and these big news stories that go above and beyond whatever format on the radio there is. And you've got to be able to figure it out. You, you didn't have any choice. And you remember, I remember that morning uh, when the planes hit the towers and I'm on live radio and I have to, to talk. Uh, I was on with Eddie Andelman at the time, and and we had to describe, I mean, forget about sports. Who was talking sports or anything else? There was one thing in the entire world, and really for a week, two weeks, it's all we talked about. Yeah. And, and it's all anybody talked about. Anywhere you went, your station, my station, it was all that mattered to any of us. And you had to be prepared to spread your wings a little bit from an intellectual point of view yeah. and figure out how to communicate that stuff. Well, especially for me and the people at my station, we were used to being able to talk for a few minutes and then go into music and prep for the next time we had to talk, yeah. which is a completely different skill set than being in talk radio of any format. And the boss came in and said, no commercials, no music, get on there and talk. And we had to figure that out. And it is mental and verbal gymnastics going into, you know, a station that's not a talk format. Because play, what are you going to play music Nothing, in no. between updates of what's going on on 9-11? You just can't. No, you couldn't. And in, in our case, we were a sports talk radio station. To your point, uh, we were told no commercials, no updates. Yep. This is this is all you're going to do yeah. for the foreseeable future. And by the way, none of us wanted to do commercials no. or updates. None of us wanted to, you know, can you imagine you, you, you buy a run of, of commercials for your auto dealership and you're going to stick one in the middle of that? Yeah. I, yeah. I mean, I would have fired the radio station if they had put my commercial on in those circumstances. So we all learned, unfortunately, the hard way. But but we learned that, you know, you relied on each other. You you propped each other up. 
Um, and you and communicate was, with your audience. You allow them yes. to, to talk. Yep, absolutely. We we did take a lot of calls. Yeah. And, you know, people, I think people just wanted to to get it off their chest. They, you know, it, it's like if, if you lose a family member and you go to the wake and people just want to talk about the person and share stories and they just wanted a place where they could communicate. And for for many folks, your radio station, my radio station, that was the place where you could do that sort of thing. And it also, I think, which is the biggest strength of radio, and I hope that radio continues to have this, is that it it gives the listener a place to belong, to feel like yeah. they're not alone in whatever, celebrating a championship and 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 dealing with tragedy, that people are involved in all going through it at the same time. And that requires live local participation from the audience and the host themselves. And and that has always been my favorite part of radio is that you get to connect on such a close level with your audience and a sports format and a rock format radio stations. There are no more passionate audiences in radio than that. <laughs> Oh, you're exactly right. And and you, I think even more than no offense meant to Mike Shue or anybody else, you in particular had that connection with your audience at that station. Um, you were that woman of mystery and, uh, and, and they wanted to connect with you even more than they wanted to connect with many others. At least my observation of that. It's been, it's been crazy to, you know, I mean, you you know, you you grew up in New England to get to have a career in New England to have that close. So when you're talking to your audience about, well, this is this is what I remember. Oh, I was at that famous game, or I was at that show. It it is different because they know that that you that you're part of that fabric, and it it does mean something. It is hard in in the industry I used to be in. Uh, I always thought it was unfair, unfairly difficult for people to come into the market from out of state, uh, you know, and suddenly we're going to bring Joe Smith in from Detroit and become a talk show host in Boston. We're pretty parochial, you yeah. know, in New England. And, and, you know, we don't accept outsiders very well. Yeah. And I don't care how, how well read Joe Smith is. And I don't care how much he followed everything in Detroit. He didn't live the summer of 67, you know, right. he didn't live through Bucky bleeping dent. So he can't know what I felt and he can't know what it was like for me, no matter how hard he tries. Yeah. When you, I mean, when I go and look back at, at all of the things that I've done in my radio career and the concerts and the memories, the last 20 plus years in Boston, I mean, Boston's always a crazy sports town, but the last 20 years have been something that just you couldn't even script for a Hollywood movie and have anyone believe the plot. What are some of your favorite highlights, moments? Just It's just been a crazy couple decades. Swing and a ground ball, stabbed by Folk. He underhands to first. I mean, that's one. Yeah. Uh, I, I remember Adam Vinatieri's field goal in New Orleans uh, in 2001. And I had both hands on my head. And I remember saying, I can't believe they're bleeping going to win the Super Bowl. I mean, it was like that. Yeah. Um, it, you know, championships always stick out in people's minds. Sometimes tragedies do too. Yeah. You know, the, the, the untimely demise of, of Reggie Lewis. Uh, and you think about that. If, if you go further back in Patriots history, the horrifying injury suffered by Daryl Stingley that left him paralyzed. Uh, Travis Roy, 
who was a, a friend of mine from the time he was three, four, five years old. Uh, you know, it, sometimes it's those things that stick out. But this this 20 years of unparalleled success, no one will ever go through in any city in North America ever again. If, if you couldn't do sports talk radio in Boston for the last 20 years, you maybe should find another career path, I think. <laughs> yeah, it's been... It's it's been a lot of cue the duck boats. I mean, it's it's become yeah. ridiculous that as soon as you just say that sentence for anyone listening that's not from the New England, it, when you say cue the duck boats in Boston, it, it's become a phrase that transcends sports now. It means, you know, batten down the hatches and get ready for a party. Cue the duck boats. <laughs> I also think, and I I sort of understand why the rest of the American sports scene hates us so much. Yeah, we suck. I really do. We suck. I mean, We're if, awful. If, oh, we are. If this was, and I'm just picking a city here. If this was New York and they went through t- the 20 years we just went through, well, we already hate everything about New York anyway, but Fact. we would hate them even more. Oh, yeah. We hate everything about them. Uh, you know, we would think they're a pain in the ass and they would be. Yeah. We're a pain in the ass here. You know, we're we're entitled. We're spoiled. As a sports fan, as Obnoxious, a sports fan is what I'm talking about. Oh, all of those incorrigible, things. Incorrigible, sore loser, shit talking, all of it. So much so that now if you if, if the Bruins lose in the Stanley Cup final to the Chicago Blackhawks or the St. Louis Blues, they suck. They got to get rid of everybody. If you lose in the Stanley Cup final, you need to blow this thing up and start over. That's where we, be, that's where we, we ended up. From, you know, oh, my God, please let my team win one. Just let me win one. In any other city, they'd be like, but we made it to the finals. And in Boston, they're like, I can't guess. Second place is no place. Yeah, exactly. That's you're just a first loser. Yep. That's what we're that's what we became. I have a theory that musicians want to be athletes. Athletes want to be actors. Actors want to be musicians. It's kind of like if you can visualize the recycle logo that it all feeds into each other. Music obviously here is, is what I talk about most times, but there are so many musicians that I talk to where it just bleeds into sports for them. They, I mean, you can't talk to the guys from theory of a dead man or three days grace who are Canadian without talking about, you know, hockey, you can't talk about, um, you know, just music with a guy like Jerry Cantrell from Allison Chains because he is such a Seahawks fan. And so, you know, the guys from Seven Dust, I was shit talking because they're from Atlanta. And when we came back to win that Super Bowl, it just, you know, was a dagger to the heart. Like, it's so, so talk to me about the different importance of what you think the role of music is in the different sports that you've taken part in. I'll give you a, a quick story to, to back up your point, which is entirely valid. And it's a story Sean Thornton said in the book that, that we recently published, uh, the Bruins win the Stanley cup and Sean's going to get his day with the cup. You know, every player, every coach gets a day with the cup and you pretty much can do what you want. And guys plan family get togethers or they, they take the cup to a children's hospital. And Sean did all of that stuff, by the way. But Ken Casey reached out to Sean and he said, hey, I understand you've got a little party with the cup. Uh, would you like us to come play for, for your party? Ken Casey and from Sean the Dropkick Murphys. From Dropkick Murphys. And Sean thought, well, that'd be great. Uh, if they'd come play a couple, three songs, that'd be not, that'd be really nice. Three and a half hours later, Sean's thinking, this is never going to end in a good way. 
I mean, Drop Kicks showed up, did a three and a half hour concert at Sean Thornton's Day with the Cup because they wanted to celebrate with him. They yeah. wanted to be part of it. And that's what it's like in this town. And and when you look at music, right? So it's it different sports. Like recently, the the organist from the St. Louis Blues, there was viral video of him playing Rage Against the Machine on the organ in the yeah. arena. Um the difficult decision for a baseball player to choose a walk-up song. Music and sports, they go together like peanut butter and jelly. It's part of the experience. Jerry Cantrell from Alice in Chains gave a shout-out on my show to whoever chooses the music at Gillette Stadium because he knows they always play Alice in Chains during the football games. Yeah, it's funny. Uh, when I was doing sports talk radio, uh, Tom Morello used to call in once in a while just because he wanted to talk sports. Yeah. You know, he just, he wanted to talk sports. He didn't want to talk about his music. He does that all the time. He lives that. Die hard Cubs sports. fan. Die hard Cubs fan. Yeah. And he, he appreciated the passion of the Boston sports uh, base. Um, you know, when he would come to town, he, he wanted to talk sports. So he'd call the show, uh, you know, it happens all over the, and you know, even more of the musicians than I do. I only know the ones who reach out to me and, and, and make connections. Uh, you know, the basis for, um, for, uh, the, the, uh, uh, Tedeschi trucks band, uh, is a local guy, you know, and, yeah. and he's not the basis for them anymore, but you know, he comes in, he visits in the studio. He just wants to sit and listen to us do sports talk. Hey, come see the show tonight. I go down to the waterfront and spend the night, you know, watching Tedeschi Trucks Band kicking it. And those are the sorts of things that I, maybe they happen in other cities as much. It seems like they happen more here. Well, you, you mentioned the book with Sean Thornton and you've, you've written two now. You wrote, if these yeah. walls could talk stories from the Boston Ice locker room and press box back in 2018, right? Yep. And then did Sean Thornton call you to put this new book together? How does that work? Um, Triumph Books, my publisher, um, they were thrilled with how the first book went. And they reached out to me and said, hey, listen, uh, it's time to write another book now. We got to, you know, we, we want another book here. And, you know, they said, you tell us what you want to write about and, and we're, we'll be happy to publish it. And I talked to a couple of different people here and there. I'm not going to say their names because I may end up working with them at some time soon. Um, One's a current player, and he said, I want to do a book, but not while I'm still playing. And so finally, I, I, I'd known Sean for a long time. I know that he's got a huge don't give a bleep factor. He is willing to say stuff. And I called him, and I said, hey, are you interested in doing a book? And, and his first thought was, no, nah, nobody cares anything about it. You know, an old fighter in the National Hockey League. I don't think so. And, and I kept at him, and I kept at him, and I – basically talked him into doing it. Then the hard part was I had to reach back to Triumph Books and say, okay, I've got the, the next book. I'm going to do Sean Thornton's autobiography. And I think they had to look him up, you know, because Sean was not a big star. He's not a Ray Bork. He's not a Connor McDavid. He's not a Sidney Crosby. But within the hockey world, he's a big deal. And I, I kind of talked them into publishing the book. And uh, I based on what they've told me, they were thrilled with how it came out. But Sean and I wrote, we signed the contract to do the book in January of 2020, a month before the country shut down. Right. 
we were, the plan was I was going to go to Florida where Sean lives and works for the Panthers. I was going to go down there two, three times. He was going to come up here. We were going to sit. We were going to kick it around. We were going to bring people in to talk with us. And then the country got shut down. We ended up writing the entire book over the phone, start to finish. When we did the kickoff event for the book back in October at Encore Boston, it was the first time Sean and I had seen each other in over two years, and yet we'd written a book together. So it, it, it wasn't the way we planned it. It wasn't necessarily how I'd want to do it. Uh, but I think it worked out okay, all things being equal. Bands had to learn how to write music when they couldn't be together, too, yes. because especially bands that had members that were in other countries, because when the border shut down, they were, it was physically impossible for them to get together. Even Metallica reportedly wrote music on Zoom, which we haven't heard yet, which is crazy. Yeah. I mean, you think about everything, every part of the entertainment industry changed, uh, you know, sports talk radio. Uh, I did the last year that I worked on sports talk radio. I did from my basement. Uh, you know, I, I didn't have as fancy a setup as you have, but <laughs> that's that's where I worked. Yeah. Now, if if you were at home listening on the radio or you were driving around Boston listening on the radio, if I didn't tell you where I was, you wouldn't know. Right. It, it, it would sound the technology is such that it would sound just as if I'm sitting in the studio doing what I do. And it, it you know, music, it, it was that way. Uh it, Every part of the entertainment world got upended and every part of the world, period, yeah. got upended. But our little corner of the world. But technology got upended would, well. you know, going back to when you and I got into radio, it wouldn't have been possible to do no. what's happening every day now with technology. Well, you can't do what you're doing right now. You couldn't yeah. have done back then. Yeah. Now, you couldn't have that fancy, schwanky studio there in your own house for crying <laughs> out loud. When you write a book about, an enforcer, a fighter. Is goon a bad word? Can you call Sean Thornton a goon? Is it acceptable now? What is that allowed? Because that was a term of endearment for a long time in the NHL. I've had a hard time with the word for a long time. Um, and one of the reasons I reached out to Sean to do the book is that I have such an appreciation and respect for people who make a living or made a living the way they do. And if, you're, if you've been around the hockey world, you know this, but some of the dearest, sweetest, kindest people are the toughest, meanest, baddest SOBs on the ice on the planet. Terry O'Reilly could not be a sweeter man. He couldn't be a nicer guy. And when he was playing for the Boston Bruins, he was an animal out there on the ice. Sean Thornton's the same way, by the way. Uh, you know, spends all of his time, he did when he was here, going and visiting Children's Hospital or the Jimmy Fund. In the aftermath of the marathon bombings, he went to the Bruins and said, listen, give me everything that you've got. And he's going over to the hospitals unannounced, unbidden, and just visiting with the victims of the marathon bombing. Hey, you okay? Everything all right? Uh, anything you need? He didn't have to do that sort of thing, but that's the kind of person he was. I hate the term goon. Uh, I think Sean probably doesn't like it. I haven't tried it out on him, to be honest with you. Um, enforcer is a, is a little less pejorative, perhaps, uh, it's a little like mafia like, <laughs> yeah, maybe a uh, tough guy. I mean, they're all tough guys. Yeah. You can't play that game and not be a tough guy, but people who made a living the way Sean did, it's different. You know, you live by what he calls the code and, and, you know, he, by his own admission of the book, he violated the code one time and it was with Brooks Orpic and he got suspended for 15 games for it. 
And as he said to me and said in the book, I'll take it to my effing grave. Is it a, is it a career path that is going to be possible moving forward in the NHL? Nope. No, and I think Sean saw it at the end of his career with the Florida Panthers. He saw that it, the game was changing. I, I don't have the exact numbers in front of me here, but uh, as we're sitting here recording this right now, I believe the Bruins have had a grand total as a team of five or six fights this entire season. That would be a week. And, you know, for Sean Thornton, it, it, could, it could be a week. For back the big in the bad day. Bruins, uh, it, you could have had five oh, fights in a game. In a game, in a period, for crying <laughs> out loud. You know, it's a different world. It's a different game. Um, uh, you know, the feeling is that they want it to be a faster, more skilled-centric kind of sport. That's fine. I get it. I mean, look, I, I love watching David Pasternak and Brad Marchand as well. But I kind of miss the toughness element. I go back to that 2011 Bruins Stanley Cup championship team, and they had Sean Thornton and Milan Lucic and Nathan Horton and Zdeno Chara and Dennis Seidenberg and Andrew Ferentz. They could skate with you, and they could kick your ass. And Bruins fans really like teams that can kick your ass. Yeah. We're scrappy. Yes, exactly. And it's why Bruins fans, I think, sometimes get a little frustrated with the way the game is today because it's not the way they grew up with the sport. Your turn. The Big Bad Bruins and Stan Jonathan and John Wensink and on and on and on and on and Jay Miller and P.J. Stock. Well, I, I don't think the Bruins have a tough guy on the team right now. By the way, by design, it's not the way they want to play the sport right now. I know that I got to let you go, but I got a couple more questions that I want to ask before sure. I let you run. First of all, people have been telling me for years that I need to write a book. Yes. And you've done it twice. You you did If These Walls Could Talk and now your new book, Fighting My Way to the Top, Sean Thornton, which just came out. How do you start? Day one, how do you start and sit down and look at a blank screen or a blank page and start to even unpack it? Because that's the hurdle I'm trying to get over. You got to do it in your head first, Carrie, before you sit in front of the screen. You got to think it out. And I remember with Sean Thornton, and I'm just using this as an example because it's the most recent book I've written. I thought, I'm going to start the book with Matt Cook and and the hit that in effect ended uh, Mark Savard's career and the Bruins response. That's the opening chapter of the book because I wanted to start there and and grab people's attention. Now, I've known you for a long time, but there's got to be an experience in your in your career where you sat there and said, holy crap, how did I get here? How am I doing this right now with these people? That's the story that grabs them. That's where you start. You start there. Then you can go back to, you know, it started at a 5,000 watt radio station and, you know, that all of those silly things that we say. Then you can go backwards. But start with the one where even now, as you think back on it, you go, how the bleep did I end up there? I mean, it would, either be, it would either be introducing Metallica at Gillette Stadium. That's or, a good one. Or it would be uh, being live on the radio by satellite phone in the ruins of a Genghis Khan fort on a mountaintop in Kabul. Yeah, and knowing <laughs> the second story more than I know the first, and I'm not trying to tell you your business. No, you, but you, you've done it twice. That's, what, that's where I'd start. The opening chapter to my mistress, Carrie, 
story would be exactly that. And, and what you had to go through to get there and, and what these guys were all around you, what they went through on a daily basis before you got there and after you left there and the friendships that you made and the relationships that you developed, that'd be the opening chapter of my Mistress Carrie book. It would be that right there. I might call you to help have you help me write it. You betcha. I'd be happy to. Um, when you have a career like you've had or I've had, and you go and build your own studio or you go and you, and you start hanging stuff on the walls, everybody always wants to see my gold records that bands have generously given me over the years and all of the, the harmonica that I played with Steven Tyler. What do you got? that are treasured mementos from all your years in sports broadcasting that, that the, the things that people, when they come to the house and they got a, they got a beer in their hand and they're like, let me hold it. Let me see it. Let me touch it. <laughs> it's funny because I, I, I recently went through the whole process of packing up and, and, you know, going through all of this. And I realized how little of that stuff I've kept over the years. Now I've got some, and you know, there are some photographs in, in particular and you've got a bunch of those, I'm sure, as well, you know, where <clears throat> the day that I literally on the air introduced Ray Bork to Larry Bird and I'm standing in between Bork and Bird. They had never met until they stood in the studio with me over at the Schraff Center in Boston, way back, in Charlestown, way back when. Um, you know, it's it's little things like that. It's um, you can't see it, but, you know, it's it's the relationship I've had with the Bush family over the years. Uh, first with President Bush 41, and and I've gotten to know Bush 43 a little better over the years, but it all started here in Maine, you know, with with um, a joint philanthropic idea. President Bush was unbelievably philanthropic. And, uh, you know, I, you, I talked to you about, you know, how the bleep did I get here? Uh, a couple of times where I was standing there with President Bush, and I remember one time <clears throat> I brought my son up. Uh, to the charity golf tournament that the president had up there. And we're in the parking lot early on and secret service had already cleared us to be able to come into the parking lot. And we're standing there. And all of a sudden I see coming up the fairway because they had left early and gone out and played some holes. I see president Bush coming towards me and he's got Bill Clinton with him. And I'm thinking George Bush and Bill Clinton. What the heck? Talk about and odd couples, right? They had become great pals, great friends. Uh, another time I'm, I'm up there at Cape Arundel where we were doing this thing and I'm sitting in the parking lot and teeing off on one because they're going to play a few holes is President Bush and Tom Brady. And in a second golf cart is Barbara Bush and Bridget Moynihan. And they're just going to follow along and watch the guys play golf for a while. And I'm thinking, how did I get here? How did I end up in this spot at this moment? And it's it's little things like that. I've got a few of those things at home. I've got, you know, signed basketballs and and you know stuff like that. But uh, I've I've been fortunate enough to you know have a, a couple of rings here and there, mostly at the minor league level. But uh, but I've got a, a Red Sox World Series ring, which is locked away somewhere. Why aren't you uh, wearing it? If I had one, I'd be wearing it right now. No, I, in my pajamas. I've never worn it. What? <laughs> Good for you, but I've never worn it. Now, I I was lucky enough to do games that summer. And, uh, you know, it just the way things worked out. And I know that drives some people crazy. 
that announcers get rings, but it's been that way forever. Yeah, you're part of the um, team. You're part of the, you're part, I, and I think it's cool. I mean, the Crafts did it too. When they won that first Super yeah. Bowl, they bought everybody in the organization the ring because, you know, the person that sweeps the floor in the locker room, everyone contributes. <clears throat> it's not just the guys on the court or the field. It's a, it's a team effort. It is. And, you know, it's things like that, that, that you remember, uh, you know, i more than, than the material things, for me, it's more the relationships that I've been, de- been able to develop over the years, you know, and it's, it's the friendships that I've been able to make with people who are in the sport, both from the announcing perspective and from the player perspective and guys that you've gotten to know a little bit. Or, and I don't want to make it sound like I'm out palling around and chumming with Ray Bork, but, you know, I can text Ray and say, hey, uh, can I talk to you about this? And he'll say, sure, give me a call. You know, that sort of uh, thing where you, where you can do that. Uh, and it's the relationships which you're able to make. And you know this, the people you're able to communicate with on a daily basis where you can pick up the phone and, and send a text. And, you know, the next thing your phone rings six seconds later and the lead singer for Metallica is on the phone, that sort of thing. Well, it's like when you come up with a charitable initiative or something and you're like, hey, yeah. can I, you cash in a, a favor or, you, you know, do you mind yeah. doing this or... Yeah, th- those things matter. That's, you know, this re- this business, regardless of format or whatever, you know, there's a lot of similarities between what you and I do. Our hair's not the hey, same, but there's a lot of similarities. I can if I want to, and I try not to cash this favor in very often. I can if I want to pick up my phone and text Mistress Carrie <laughs> and have her respond. I can do that. <laughs> Well, um, I I might be that person that texts if I want to Dale Arnold, and I, you know I kick myself for not starting the book process during COVID, but it is something that people keep telling me that I need to start working on. So absolutely, you do. I need to maybe start blowing up your phone for some writing advice because, I, for for me, I don't know. I feel like I can't start the story if I don't know how it ends. And I know that's foolish because the end is death. And obviously you can't write the book when you're dead. So you got to kind of figure it out before that. You don't have to be dead before the book ends. Sean Thornton's still alive. Thank you very much. You don't have to be dead. You can keep going. You can write, you know, my life until now. Yeah. Wait for volume two. Do it. You absolutely need to do it. Well, I'm going to call you for the advice because uh, I, you know, unpacking it and and it's a skill to be able to put a book together, especially um, doing it, you know, around someone else's life for you to be able to unpack and sit down and tell Sean Thornton, like, this is how to organize your life. Like, that's a skill that I don't have because I can't even organize my own life, Dale. The one part that would be easier for you, and I'm not suggesting that, you know, I was, I was, you know, digging ditches and and breaking my back here. The hardest thing for me was writing the book in Sean Thornton's voice. Right. Because this is his autobiography. I wrote every word of it, but it's his story, his voice. And that was difficult at first. You're writing in your voice. Yeah. It's Carrie talking. You don't need to do any of that. You don't need to filter any of that. You know, you, you, you know that voice pretty well. It gets a little creepy sometimes in your own head, <laughs> but you know it. You know that It's voice. creepy outside it. of my own head, Dale. <laughs> Well, I know the feeling. Believe me, I do. 
thank you so much for hanging out with me today. It was so good to see you and and be able to say hi. I miss being able to bump into you at the water cooler and catch up on stuff and, you know, pounce into your studio every now and again. Um, You know, you've been super gracious when it comes to, like, bringing the kids into the broadcast booth at the Bruins games and um, hey, when you when you got to introduce me to Darnell from Run DMC, you made my kid's life. Uh, you kidding me? Daryl McDaniels, man, he is Daryl. He he was so nice. He's so good. That surprise for Michael Hawley on the air that day when we brought him in to surprise him. I will never forget that day. That was so cool. The look on his face. Yes. And uh, and, you know, you could just see his eyes light up. Like, and wait, was, is that you who made I think that it possible? Is? Well, yeah. What's but that? It, I, it, yeah, when when Michael Hawley looked at him, was like, "Is that who I think it is?" <laughs> it was fun. Yeah, absolutely. Well, enjoy your, uh, you know, time off the holidays, hunkering down in the cold weather up in Maine, and um, you know, obviously, we'll see you on the Bruins games and stuff. But we'll keep in touch because got a lot going on. Anytime, my friend. I love you. I love you, too. Happy holidays. Happy New Year. Thanks. We'll see you soon. Congratulations on your daughters getting married. Feel bad for the checkbook, but congratulations. I would not recommend marrying off two daughters in a four-month span. <laughs> Nor would we have done that if it weren't for COVID. But now that it's over, thank God, we're yeah. good to go. Congratulations. Thanks. Good to see you, Carrie. There he is, author and sportscaster and co-star of our upcoming show, The Newly Rebooted Odd Couple, Dale Arnold. If you want more details about Dale, you can find all the links in the show notes of this podcast, including the link to buy a copy of the book, Sean Thornton, Fighting My Way to the Top. You'll also find all of my links as well and the link to the corresponding playlist for this episode. Every full-length episode of the Mistress Carrie podcast gets a playlist that features all the music we talked about, and this one, well, it's got a lot of hockey songs on it, too. Thanks once again to our sponsor, Digital Federal Credit Union. You can find them online at dcu.org. If you liked what you heard, don't forget to hit follow and subscribe to the Mistress Carrie podcast. New full-length episodes come out every Wednesday. Plus, every weekday, you get the situation reports. The sit rep is all of your rock news, music headlines, and industry info in less than five minutes. Plus, you never know when we're going to drop a bonus episode. And you can always find me online at mistresscarry.com. Join me every Tuesday night live on my Facebook page for Cocktails in the War Room, the Mistress Carry podcast, a proud member of the Pantheon Podcast Network. For the ones finding new ways to ensure the job always gets done. For the ones wearing many hats. For the ones who are hands-on, even from far away. And the ones keeping business moving forward. We are Granger, Offering professional-grade industrial supplies, plus real-time product availability, and access to experts ready to answer your toughest questions. Call, click Granger.com or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.